church said amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, once again, we welcome you here today as we worship and praise God. Thank you for braving the blustery cold weather out there. Hope that uh, you are blessed by our time together this morning. Let's have a prayer, please, one more time. God, just pour through me the gift of preaching. May our hearts be tuned to you. May our feet be ready to go wherever you may call us. In Christ we pray, amen. So one morning a woman woke up. She rolled over in bed to face her husband and said, Oh, honey, I had the most amazing dream last night. I dreamt that you gave me a beautiful pearl necklace. What do you think that means? And the husband smiled, winked, reached over and kissed her gently on the cheek and whispered in her ear, well, I guess you'll have to find out tonight, won't you? And so that evening he comes in with this small but beautifully wrapped package and he hands it to her and she squeals with delight as she rips it open to find that he had bought her a book entitled, How to Discover the Meaning of Your Dreams. <laughs> We all look for meaning, don't we? Meaning in dreams, meaning in events, purpose, reason behind why we ask those kinds of questions about life. All of those are just uh, simpler versions of the truly deep questions that we ask about the meaning and purpose of our lives. We want to know that we matter. We want to know that there is a purpose in our lives. We want to know that we can make a difference. doesn't matter what age you're at what life stage you're in right now. We are all on a quest for meaning and purpose. Plato even said, uh, humanity is just beings in search of meaning. And that's so true. We are hungry for that. When we're, when we're children, we're, we're in search of our identity. We're trying to find out who we are. And so we pretend we're Wonder Woman, we're Batman, we're Spider-Man. We're trying on different identities. That doesn't really change as we get into adolescence instead of Wonder Woman and Batman and all. But we try to be a, a, a jock or a nerd, something like that, or a nerdy jock, something, you know, in between. We're trying to figure out where, who we are, where we belong, what we're about. And we're supposed to have it all figured out by the time we're 18, right? You graduate high school, you're supposed to know whether or not you're going to go to college or whether you're not going to go into the workforce or to the military, something like that. You're supposed to know what you're going to major in, what you're going to do with the rest of your life. You're supposed to have it all figured out, but you know we don't have it all figured out. We don't even have it figured out by midlife. That's what midlife crises are all about, right? We, we change, we put on a different identity, we try something new. And by the time we get older, it's still the same do you know that one of the highest segments, age groupings of male suicide is from 55 to 65? You know what's going on in those age brackets, right? Retirement. Guys are, are moving away from their source of identity of who they are, and, and suddenly they're, they're without an anchor, and they, they don't know what their life is about because they've invested in the wrong thing. They've sought their identity through what the world says they are, who the world says they are. And now they're like, where, where do I go? What do I do? What am I about? And then by the time we're, we're older and we're near death, we reflect back on our life and we want to know, did our lives matter? Did we fulfill God's purpose for our lives? 
And it's crazy that we're on this search all the time because the world is filled with all kinds of different answers for us, for the meaning, for the dreams we ought to have for our lives, for the purpose we ought to have for our lives. Here are just a, a few quotes. Some, of us, some people quote, uh, wants us to feel good about our lives, so the Dalai Lama says the purpose of your life is to be happy. No, I like that. I want to be happy, but is that really the purpose of my life? How do I achieve that? Some take a more depressing outlook on it. Ernest Hemingway, who, by the way, committed suicide, wrote, Life is just a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. Boy, aren't you glad you came to church today? Uplifting message, you know? Quentin Crisp, a, a British actor, so, you know, if he's an actor, he's really got a lot on the ball and knows what's going on, shares a lot of wisdom, but he's a little more blunt than Ernest Hemingway. He says it this way, you fall out of your mother's womb, you crawl across open country under fire, and then you drop into your grave. That's what life is. Joseph Heller, the author of Catch-22, the book, the movies, you know, there's a new miniseries coming out this year. He says, I have no answers for the meaning of life, and I lo no longer want to search for any. And so maybe even that's where you're at. You're just, you don't even think about it. Maybe you've just given up and given in. You've accepted your lot in life. But Gene Apple says, a pastor, he's a pastor, and he says, a life without purpose is pointless. And so it's true. Some people take a little more lighthearted approach. Albert Hubbard, philosopher, says it this way. Do not take life too seriously. You're never going to get out of it alive. <laughs> and Bob Monkhouse, who was a game show host, by the way, so you know he had a lot of uh, enlightening things to say. He says, personally, I don't think there's intelligent life on other planets. Why should other planets be any different from this one? Mm -hmm. We're all searching for something more, some deeper meaning to life. There's something within inside us that churns, no matter what age we are, male or female, what's going on in our, in our life, there's something within us that churns, that's asking, there's got to be more than this. This cannot be all that there is. You remember the movie, As Good As It Gets? Jack Nicholson's the main character, kind of an OCD guy, and he, you, you may remember the scene, he bursts into his therapist's office demanding an appointment, and even though he doesn't have one, and so the, they have a little exchange, and the therapist throws him out, and so he's aggravated, and as he's leaving, he's passing through the waiting room filled with people who are waiting on the therapist because so, they want some answers for their lives, and Nicholson ch stops at the door, and he pauses, and he says, what if this really is as good as it gets? And then he walks out. And the camera pans across the waiting room. And you see it on the faces, the wheels beginning to turn. What if this is it? What if this ailment that you're going through is as good as you're ever going to feel? What if this marriage that you feel trapped in is as good as it's ever going to get? What if this dead-end job that you're in is as good as it's ever going to get? 
We know that there's got to be something more than that. We know that kind of thinking is wrong. We hunger for something more. And so we, we look for those answers. And you can find answers. You can look around in society and you can see some people who've got their act together, who've made it to the top. They're at the pinnacle of the pyramid. They are successful and have a reason and a purpose for existence. And when I think about somebody like, the, like that, I think about Tom Brady. You know, I don't even know how to explain who he is. Most of you figure it out. He's the quarterback of the New England Patriots, the most successful football team in NFL, NFL history, arguably perhaps the most uh, successful football player Tom Brady is. He's one of the wealthiest guys in the world. I won't even make in 10 lifetimes what he makes in a single season as he plays. He's got more money than he'll ever be able to spend. He was voted by People Magazine as one of the most beautiful people in the world. He has a supermodel, literally a supermodel, for a wife. He's quarterbacking the most successful NFL team. So he's at the pinnacle. He's successful. And kind of as I think about it, it dawns on me, you know, he and I have got a lot in common. <laughs> I'm kind of hurt that you laugh at that. <laughs> I mean, you know, other than the looks and the money um, and the fame and the fortune and the success... He and I both have beautiful wives. <laughs> yeah. I don't, and I don't even think Mimi's here, so she's back teaching the youth group. She didn't hear that. So y'all can tell her that I said that, please, please. But even Tom Brady has that churning within him. After his third Super Bowl win, he did an interview with 60 Minutes, and here's what he confessed. Let's watch. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's great stories. At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. All he knows how to do is win. <laughs> this is what you always wanted. You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. If someone like that can say there's got to be more to life, it's, it's discouraging, isn't it? You, you might even say that if Tom Brady of the New England Patriots could say that, it would be a little deflating, right? <laughs> ah, y'all are sharp. That's good. <laughs> but it is, isn't it? I mean, he's reached it. And that's who we want to be, right? Successful, beautiful, rich. At least that's what the world says we want to be. And let's be honest, 
Just because we're the church, we buy into a lot of what the world says about who we should and should not be. Jim Carrey, of all people, actor, comedian, he gets it pretty close. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Hmm, he's right. Now, you know, there is someone in the world who has uh, done far more than Tom Brady, a um, lot more than Jim Carrey, uh, who experienced so much more of what the world has to offer and discovered that it uh, does not add up to what they had hoped it would be. But in the end... King Solomon discovered something very valuable for us today. Now, you're familiar with the name Solomon, probably. He's the son of David. He was the third king of Israel. At the time of his life, he was the, the richest person that ever existed. People would, uh, nations would bring ships of gold and silver and herbs and spices and all kinds of exotic things to him. He, he, people from all over the world, kings and queens, would travel to just sit at his feet to learn from his wisdom and his knowledge. He, he was the richest man. He, he enjoyed lots of sex, honestly. He had 700 wives a thousand concubines, and he said, I tried it all. I looked for every enjoyment there was in life, whether it was money, sex, or, or influence, and power, and knowledge. And here's what he said in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The very, and think of Ecclesiastes as his journal about his quest for meaning and significance in life. He says this, it's meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then just a few verses later, toward the end of the chapter, he says this, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to capture the wind? It's silly, it's impossible, we know that. We're trying to grasp it, get a hold of it, get a handle on it. Well, Solomon says, when we pursue the things of this world like that, when we use the wisdom of the world like this, that is just a chasing after the wind. We're always going to end up empty-handed. It's never going to be fulfilling. It's never going to satisfy the dream that God has placed within our hearts. I like the way Drew Sherman, Sherman reflects on Solomon. He says it this way. Riches, power, sex, knowledge. People give their whole lives for these things. Families are sacrificed for these. Marriages are forfeited for the sake of these things. Little boys are left on little league fields parentless for the sake of these things. Little girls are left in empty dance halls because of the quest for these pursuits. We do that. We sacrifice so much on the altar of meaning and purpose and significance. The trouble is we've sold ourselves short. We're pursuing the wrong things. We've become satisfied with the wrong dream. God has something greater in store for us, something much more significant. But we tend to stop dreaming big when we start feeling trapped by something small. And believe it or not, the things of this world are small. God has something much bigger in store for us. By the time Solomon gets to the end of his journal in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he summarizes in a single sentence. He doesn't unpack it. He doesn't explain it. He just kind of leaves it hanging out there for us as he closes off his journal. 
for us to contemplate and think about. He gets to the answer that matters. And this is what he says. He says that in the end, after seeing it all and experiencing it all, the only thing that counts is to fear God and obey his commands. For this is the whole duty of humanity. Now, I know this is church, and so that sounds pretty churchy. In fact, it probably you know, causes us to, to bristle our back just a little bit. I mean, fear God. God's this loving Father. He's kind. He's Santa Claus, right? He's just supposed to do what we want. He's kind of the, the genie in the lamp. We rub him the right way, and he poofs out and gives us anything that our hearts desire. It's kind of what we think. And so we read a word like fear God, and we, we bristle against that a little bit. But, but listen, if, if Tom Brady, if you knew he was going to show up today and you were going to get to spend an hour or two with him talking football, you, you would have some, some butterflies in your stomach. You'd be uh, excited about that, but a little bit nervous, just, just a little bit fearful. And, and I don't care how you feel about him, but if, if uh, Donald Trump was to be coming here today, president of the United States, and you were going to spend some time with him, you would be a little nervous. You would be a little fearful, a little apprehensive, just if nothing else for the respect of the office that is there. And so, so Solomon says, fear God. God, the one who planted the original dream in your heart. God, the one who dreamed you up. God, the Father who dreamed up the greatest galaxies that are out there, billions and billions of them, as vast and expansive as they are, and he dreamed up even the smallest little insignificant creature, amoeba that you can imagine. And he dreamed up everything in between, and God dreamed of you. You are part of God's dream, part of his eternal plan. He has a desire for you, a desire that he places within your heart. It's that thing that stirs within us that says there's got to be something more. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon says it like this. He says, God has planted eternity in our hearts. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. What he means by this is God has planted something within you, but there's a hunger that you cannot satisfy on your own. We, we, can, we, can, we can think we got a hold of it, but, but God is so much bigger, so much vaster than anything we can ask, seek, or imagine his dreams, his plans that he places within us, that sense of eternity, that longing for something more that has got to be better, is so much deeper and bigger than anything that we can even begin to comprehend. It is hard for us to fathom, but that's what God has in store for you. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it back in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Now, I don't know about you, but I can ask and imagine a whole lot of stuff. But Paul says God can do more than that. It's the God who dreamed up you. It's the God that planted that dream within you. The message paraphrase looks at Ephesians this way. God can do anything, you know far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. 
And he does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His spirit deeply and gently within us. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've got that hunger that says, I'm meant for something more than this. C.S. Lewis said it this way. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this life can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And we were. And we only stop dreaming those big dreams. We only stop pursuing and chasing after God when we settle for those smaller dreams, those less significant things, when we suddenly feel trapped by the smallness of what this world has to offer. (laughs) But it's just crazy. So what we do is we just try that much harder to achieve it. And all the while, all we need to grasp a hold of is what Solomon said, fear the Lord and obey his commands. And so that brings us to Benaiah, the man we're studying through this series called Lion's Chasers. Benaiah, if you've begun to read about him and study about him, you find him mentioned all throughout Scripture. He, he, he's associated with King David and King Solomon. Benaiah means God made or God is making. And I love that. Because what we learn about Benaiah in his life is God is making him. God is building him. God is creating him. And we all should be Benaiahs, right? God is building in us. God is working on us. He's planting eternity in our hearts. But he's, he's going to, to work with us to build step by step to achieving his vision, his dream for what we can become. We're Benaiahs. God is building in us. And so we, we read in the passage that is our, our theme verse for this series, we read of Benaiah and all the great things he did. Benaiah, here will come up on the screen. Maybe he, One more, keep going, keep going. There we go. There was also Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior from Kabzeel. Valiant warrior. He did many heroic deeds, and there's only a few mentioned in these verses, but when you look at Benaiah, you see many of the things he did. He was early on in the, in the life of David, before David even uh, took over the kingship, the rulership of Israel. He had been anointed king. King Saul had turned his back on God, and God had abandoned him, and he had anointed David king, but David had not taken the throne. He had not ascended to the throne yet. So he's out in the wilderness, and and he doesn't have the Israelite army with him. Instead, what he's got is a band of rabble-rousers, right? He's got people who, who don't fit into society. He's got mercenaries. He's got people from other lands coming and working, working with him, fighting for him. It's, it's a rough group that didn't fit into normal society. And what David does, he sees something in Benaiah, and he says, hey, I've got this group of people who, who are basically mercenaries, and you can imagine what kind of men those were. And he says, Benaiah, I want you to be in charge of them. That's how tough and fierce Benaiah was to be able to control those mercenaries early on in David's life. And as, as Benaiah continued throughout his journey, he rose in the ranks of David's army. He ended up becoming um, a, a leader of once the army was established and David had taken over Israel, he was in charge of the army. Well, he put Benaiah in charge of 24,000 men leading them. 
kind of on a rotating basis. It's just the way they did it back then. But Benaiah was in charge. He was that kind of leader. He was fierce. He was the kind of person that people looked up to. He was successful. And he was loyal to David. Remember when Absalom, his David's son, rebelled against David and, and took some of the army with him and all? Benaiah chose to stay with David. And he ended up being part of the army that defeated Absalom. So Benaiah did many heroic deeds, including among those deeds was killing two champions of Moab. Now, I love this word champions here because it's, it's a, a play on words that doesn't come out in English a, a whole lot. The word there is Ariel, Ariel. And, and you've heard this word, whether you remember it or not, because, because Frank has talked about one of his grandchildren being named Ariel, Lion, Lion. It, and it's, it's a word that sounds like the Hebrew word for lion. And so, so the King James translates that phrase. He defeated, he did many heroic deeds, including killing two lion-like men from Moab. So he's defeating these guys who are fierce and powerful. He's beating them. And another time on a snowy day, he chased the lion down into a pit and killed it. Now, this, this, is, this says he chased the lion. I don't know if he chased the lion or if the lion fell into the pit. But can you imagine the type of man that a lion would be afraid of and run from and run away from? Benaiah is a tough guy, and he's chasing down this lion into this pit, and he chooses to jump into the pit with the lion on a snowy day when, when his footing would be unsure. You can just imagine the intensity of the moment and the scene. Some of you are there now. You're in the pit with the lion. You feel his hot, warm breath. You hear his roar. Your feet are slipping. And you're facing the challenge of your life. And so all this talk about God has meant something bigger for you kind of washes over you because you're like, you don't understand I'm not sure my marriage is going to endure. I'm not sure I'm going to have a job tomorrow. I'm not sure that my kids are going to remain faithful. I'm not sure I'm even going to be alive because of the diagnosis I received. You're battling a lion. But could it be that God would use that moment for you to remain obedient to him, to build you into the person he wants you to be? no matter what challenge it is you're facing. The story of Benaiah continues. Not only did he do all of that, but once armed with only a club. Now, I don't know what image comes to your mind when you think of club. I tend to think of one of those old uh, cartoons of, um, of cavemen. You know, they have that big stick. You know, it basically it looks like a giant turkey leg kind of thing that they carried around. But that's not the word that's there. And the word that's there is really a stick. That, that's what the word is. He's, he's got a stick that's with him. Now, I don't know how big it is, but it's not the big club that you kind of think of. And he killed an imposing Egyptian warrior. Imposing, it was, that, that's the word for, for he's kind of a man's man. In fact, in another passage um, where this same event is being described, it's said that the, the Egyptian was a giant over seven feet tall. So you get this image of this, this man's man, this massive Egyptian coming after Benaiah, and he's got a, a spear in his hands, a spear that's, that's like a, a, a weaver's rod. It's huge. It's massive. It's to keep distance from your enemy. And he's coming after Benaiah with that. But what Benaiah does is he wrenches that spear from the Egyptian and kills him with that. That's the kind of man Benaiah is. Powerful, 
And then this isn't even the end of the story. Because when you follow Benaiah's life further, you find that when David's about to die, he's already said Solomon was going to be the next king. But one of Solomon's half-brothers doesn't like that, and so he rebels and he starts a revolution and gathers some of the Israeli army with him to fight David and Solomon so that he can take the kingdom. But again, Benaiah stays faithful, and he aligns himself with Solomon, and, he, and, and Benaiah ends up killing Solomon's half-brother and the leader of the army. He ends up being victorious, and so Solomon makes him leader of the entire army of Israel. I mean, Solomon is at the peak second in command of the nation. Now, I don't know if that was his dream all along. You know, one day I'm going to be the the leader of the the army of Israel. But what I do know is that Benaiah stayed faithful time in, time again. He fought the fights that were before him so that he could pursue the dream that God had laid in his heart. So what does all this mean? Let's... Let's very quickly begin to apply this. Two things to grasp a hold and to kind of think of. Great dreams begin in the heart of God. Whatever dream he's placed in you, whatever sense of eternity that is in your heart, is there because God has placed that dream. I remember when, um, in fact, I shared last week, and before I came on staff here, I was working as a project manager at a software company. And I knew nothing about project management, and I knew nothing about software. But somehow I got that job working as a project manager at a software company. And they were, they were hoping to build the project management division of the company into, um, an, into a service that they could offer their clients. And so we were working toward that. Well, after I'd been there a while, they hired a, a real project manager. Someone who actually knew what they were doing and could do it well. And, and, and I got a little nervous about that. I was like, well, if you all are hiring him, does that mean like I'm out? And, and, and the owner of the company's like, no, no, you're doing exactly what we need you to do. Just keep doing it. Do a little more of it. We're, you're fine. You know, we're just expanding. It's great. You're okay. Well, after about a year, they fired the guy. And I got even more nervous than I was when they hired the guy. I was like, well, they fired him. Who knows what he's doing? Am I next? What, what's going to happen with me? So I talked to the owner of the company. He says, no, no, you're fine. You're doing exactly what we want you to do. He wasn't living up to the standard, but you are. You're good. Just keep doing it. And he meant that to encourage me. But that time, something changed within me, honestly. Because it occurred to me, like, if I can do this job and, 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 and not really you know, think about it, I, and I'm end up good enough, good enough to keep around and, and all that, and it's, 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 it's fairly easy to do and, and all this, then, then, man, I was made for something more than this. I want a challenge. And so I began to pray a very dangerous prayer. I began to pray, God, let me do something where I have to fall to my knees. Let me do something that the only way it can be done is if you do it through me. I'm meant for something more than this. Let me do that. And that's when he brought me to Lighthouse. There you go. Maybe God has you right where he needs you. Because I think I needed that time at that company to heal and to grow and to mature and to come to that point. 
Maybe the lion that you're facing is exactly the lion God has placed in your life to grow you and build you. Or maybe it's not a lion that God has placed there at all. Maybe Satan has placed it there, but God can use that to build you and grow you. He's got something more in store for you because you're part of the answer to his dream. And then the second part of this is that not only does God place the desires in our heart and does his dreams become our dreams, but, but God uses us in amazing, powerful ways by setting a destiny. And a destiny that he has placed for us is determined by whether or not we seize our God-given opportunities. God has something in store for you, but it's up to you to pursue it. I mean, after all, when Jesus was with that woman caught in adultery and the disciples were away and he spent all that time with them, with, with her, not, sorry, not the woman caught in adultery, but the, the Samaritan woman, the disciples come back and they're bringing lunch to him and they say, here, Jesus, eat. And Jesus says, I'm not hungry. And they say, how can you not be hungry? It's been a long time since you ate. And he says, don't you understand? My food is to do the will of my father, to do the will of my father. And later on, Jesus tells a parable about these guys who are supposed to be obedient to, to the, their master. And what Jesus says to the, or the master says to the ones who do right, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. What are you pursuing? What are you doing? Jesus did not say, well thought out, well planned, well strategized, well thought through, well dreamed up. No, he says, well done. Jesus calls us to do something, to pursue that dream, that hunger that's in you, that discomfort that's in you, that longing for something more in you is God's Holy Spirit tapping on your heart saying, wake up, pursue me, chase me, obey me. God has placed a dream in your heart to choose a bigger life. Mark Batterson says it this way. Seeing and seizing opportunities is an overlooked and underappreciated dimension of spiritual maturity. Every day is filled with countless God-ordained opportunities. Not a day goes by that we don't have an opportunity to love, an opportunity to serve, an opportunity to give, an opportunity to learn. But there's a catch. Most of us want our opportunities nicely packaged and presented to us as gifts we simply have to unwrap. We want our lions stuffed or caged, or cooked medium well and served on a silver platter. But opportunities typically present themselves at the most inopportune time in the mo most inopportune place. The two Moabites didn't schedule an appointment with Benaiah's assistant. The Egyptian didn't knock on the door. He knocked down the door. The lion didn't roll over and play dead. Here's the great irony about opportunities. They usually come disguised as insurmountable problems. They look like 500-pound lions that want to eat you for lunch. To the average person, the circumstances presented to Benaiah were problems to run away from, not opportunities to be seized. But Benaiah didn't see a 500-pound problem. He saw a lion skin hanging in his tent. Lion chasers are the kind of people who rise to the occasion. Lion chasers are the kind of people who refuse to be intimidated by Moabites. Lion chasers 
play to win. They fight for what they believe in. They don't live life sitting back on their heels. They live life on the tips of their toes, waiting to see what God is going to do next. And I think, some, I think God has got something next in store for us. So let me go out on a limb just a little bit. I've been fired from a church before. I can do it again, you know. <laughs> Frank has been sick a long time. And God has walked with him through that journey. And God has begun to heal him through that journey and bring him back to us. But more than a physical journey, I want to bet that Frank's been on a spiritual journey. I think God is doing something. He's got Frank in a pit with a lion. And Frank's being faithful through that. And God is implanting in him a vision, a dream, a hope of what Lighthouse can become and be. And so when Frank gets back here in a few weeks, I think we're in store for something magnificent because God is going to reveal through him a dream that he has for us, his people. And it doesn't matter if you're a banker or a baker. You're part of that dream. Wherever you are, whatever stage of life you're a part of, God has got something great in store for us. And he's working on us, bringing it to fruition. We just have to be willing to chase the lion, to face the obstacles, to look for the opportunities. We have to remain obedient and faithful and fear the Lord through all of this because God has something great in store for us. I prayed that prayer at that software company. Lord, do something through me that, I, that drives me to my needs. And I think we're here. Look, I don't want to be part of a church that only says we're here to make disciples who change the world. I want to be part of a church that actually does that, that impacts the world, that makes a difference, that leaves an impact. I don't want to be a part of a church where people in the pews just come to be satisfied through a, a sermon or a little bit of music. I want to be part of a church that dreams big dreams for the kingdom of God because God has placed that in our hearts. It is His dream for us. It is up to us to rise to the challenge, to chase the lion, to be victorious, to wrench the spear from the Egyptian and stab him with it. We are on the victor's side. And I think and I pray you share that dream with me. So would you stand? And would you receive these same words of blessing? Now, don't get excited. Church is not over yet, but <laughs> you don't get to go home right now. Set God-sized goals. Pursue God-given passions. Go after a dream that is destined to fail without divine intervention. Stop pointing out problems and become part of the solution. Stop repeating the past and start creating the future. Face your fears. Fight for your dreams. Grab opportunity by the mane and don't let go. 
Live like today is the first day and the last day of your life. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Don't let fear dictate your decisions. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Live for the applause of nail-scarred hands. Don't try to be who you're not. Be yourself. Laugh at yourself. Dare to dream God-sized dreams. Dare to be different. Quit holding out. Quit holding back. Quit running away. Chase the lion. And we're about to sing a song. And it's a time for you to decide if you're going to chase the lion or not. Because God has placed that dream in your heart. It's just whether or not you're going to let the fear of the beast overcome you. Or you're going to let the love of God overcome you. It's all up to you to choose. Because God is the answer. So, you can come and kneel at the altar. You can come and respond. I'll be standing up here. If you'd like to pray with someone. Or you can stay right where you're at and do business with a God. Or you can stay right where you're at and do nothing. But they don't write stories of those who tremble in fear and run away. God wants to write the story of your life as being a lion chaser. So let's run after the lion.